Good morning, Zacharias Funderburg. Good evening, Cooper. It's good to see you as well. We're on these crazy time zones differences. Uh, I'm all the way up north in Branson, Missouri. And all, all the way down, down south, south in Dallas, Texas, where we're actually in the ta- same time zone. The same time zone. Indeed. I just said morning because I wanted to. And I said evening because that's what it is. Yeah, that's correct. Zach, something happened to me just now. I want to hear about it. I, I experienced it with you, but I want to hear it more in depth. So we're, we're on Zoom right now. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I forgot my password. Uh, All right. Cooper. I mean, sue me. Yeah. Sue me. No. Forgot my password for Zoom, which a whole other side note would be, man, I just want everything to remember my password for me. Just right. do a retina scan or something, whatever. Right. But Zach, when you forget your password, you get the option to go through this string of hoops yeah. to jump through so that you can earn back the right to knowing your password. Essentially I've been through the hoops. I've been through it. And some of the hoops are difficult to jump through. I'm just oh. going to say it. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I just feel like a dog, a dog jumping through little hoops at the Thanksgiving day dog show. That's what I feel like. <laughs> no nah, man, not the puppy show. <laughs> I know. Shout out to that episode that we did where we talked about that as being one of the greatest things about Thanksgiving. But anyways, oh, yes. Yeah, shout out. Ladies and gentlemen, I, had to prove that I wasn't a robot to get my password back. Which, first of all, what robots are trying to get onto Cooper McCullough's Zoom? It's my Zoom, man. How can a robot Zoom? I don't know. What is it? What face is it going to put up? Because obviously my thought of a Zoom is like those brain pop videos they used to play in our history class, where it's that big orange robot, you know? Yep. Yeah, and it's like, it's like it comes up to talk or whatever. Yeah, it's like, what is he trying to do with my Zoom account? I don't, I don't know, Zach. And so that's, what are that's we what really, I'm trying to get to the bottom of. What are we really protecting from? I don't know. Robots becoming me and zooming you on the podcast. But I'm getting, we're getting caught in the weeds here. I'm sorry. You see, not, I, I, I don't believe there's robots trying to steal my passwords. But even yeah. if they were, the way that I had to prove that I'm not a robot is not easy. No. I, 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 I question if I am possibly a robot because I couldn't do it on the first try. You were stumbling pretty hard. And, and there's two different types of tests. I'll talk about the one I was given, and I'll talk about ones I've had in the past. Okay. Other, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a password forgetter. Yes. I just put it all in Chrome, and now it's on the internet, so you know where all my passwords are. <laughs> do you want to hack my life? We won't say but, your password. No. But I... Uh, I was shown a group of pictures, all of them on the road, of yeah, course. Of course. Very similar pictures. And it said, click all the ones with a bus in it. <laughs> and so I'm going in. Might I add, these pictures are small. Oh, yeah. Like, Can we I not a, get a, a nicer camera to take these pictures? Are they taken from a traffic stop camera or something? Exactly. Exactly. And, and the, the, the little box window that came up was like tiny on my screen. Yeah. And it wouldn't let me go bigger. It was just like stuck small. So I'm like, because a robot would instinctively know to zoom in and see what it it was. I mean, it just proving you're not a robot. Yeah, I guess. And so as I'm attempting to figure out what in the world is on these pictures, I see buses of like van. There's like a van, like a 12 passenger van. There's a school bus. There's a tour bus. Then there's like seven crosswalk red cars far away with like a, what looks like a corner and I'm just hopelessly clicking what I think might be a bus at this point. Right. Zach, I know what a bus is, man. I do too. I know what a bus is, but, but, but the computer thinks I'm a robot because I couldn't pick the bus ones. And you the next failed one was, it. I failed. I failed it. There was nine pictures and I could not pick out of which nine were buses. 
Next one, similar pictures, crosswalk. Mm. Now I'm looking for white stripes on the ground. <laughs> and luckily I made it through, but it was by the skin of my teeth that I, I mean, was able to select all these. Is it that cryptic or has our education system really failed us? Do we know what a bus is? Are robots that smart is what or, I'm wondering. I mean, well, let's talk about the second test you might be given. Yes. So the second test is when they gave you this fizzled out gray box with dark, like darker-ish letters that are no longer what they should look like. Right. They're like cryptic hieroglyphs that at one point were a letter. And like are Which warped. I'm incapable of leading, reading because I'm a human and I yeah. read English letters in human, please. Robots don't read English. No, I'm not an abstract art connoisseur. No, right? I'm not I trying to lost. read Picasso's handwriting here to try and get that's, my password. That's correct. I, I intentionally type things and handwrite things in my own handwriting because I can read that. I don't, I don't go for fun to look up how to create an almost A that's not quite an A. <laughs> and then they mix the capitals in the lowercase. And I don't know if I, they want it in all caps or in lowercase. Right. Or if it's in a capital letter, I can put a lowercase and it counts. So now I'm stressing out. Then they throw numbers up there in right. the top little corner. And I'm like, is this the number of the challenge or is this what they want me to put? What order do I put? Or when they stack them directly one on top of the other, which yeah. one comes first in the order? I have too many questions, Zach. I think I'm a robot. I do too. I think we are living in just an archaic time. Like, can we not get to the present on these password recovery systems? I mean, Please, I'd rather on. write a 300 word essay proving I'm a human <laughs> at this point. It would be quicker. If I could just talk about my experiences being a human, I just wanted to yell at my computer, I'm human. I've stubbed my toe. That's what it should be is if you have you stubbed your toe, if you've stubbed your toe, that's how you know you're a human. You're walking down. You should be able to explain the pain that only a human being understands when you want to detach your pinky toe further from your body than anything has ever been before because you hate the pain. I say we make a petition, change the robot tests instead of picking pictures that no one knows. Talk about how bad it hurts to stub your toe. Only a human knows that pain. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here on the co-host, Cooper. Cooper, have you stubbed your toe recently? I stubbed my toe on stage this morning oh. as I was getting up as a character. I was stepping on stage. And I missed and just not only saw my toe rip my shin apart, but that's another story for another day. And there's not many things that unite humanity, but stubbing your toe is one. And I, I think mean, that it, can prove a difference between a human and a robot any day. There's no partiality shown when your toe hits the table, rich or poor, young or old, <laughs> bilingual, only no English, using English letters. I you mean, know what a crosswalk is. You don't know what a crosswalk is. We're all equal. I under mean, the point that stubbing your toe is the worst pain in the entire 300 world. word essay MLA for formatting about stubbing toes. It'll get your password back. I mean, I think it should. <laughs> well, Coop, we got an amazing interview today. Amazing. I'm excited to hear about it. His name's Bill Woodich from the Woodich group. He's a CEO, entrepreneur, a sales expert, and a leadership speaker. He wrote a book. This book is called fail more. I have it. I have not read it yet, but I want to. Uh, fail more. He's talking about failure at the beginning of his career that has propelled him to the success that he's found today. Much like when you fail to remember your password and then you have to jump mm. through the hoops and the hoops to get it back. 
but it's I just don't want to put down what a stop sign is, man. <laughs> but it's an amazing conversation. Bill is so insightful. He's so he's a very, very good communicator. One of those guys that I think has just beat the um out of himself. Like he just doesn't mm. say um. You know what I'm saying? Wow. And yes, no, it's I know impressive. Exactly what you mean. And it's like to the point where it wasn't distracting, but it was noticeable while I was interviewing him. About how little he said, um, and yeah. by little, I mean, probably non-existent. Yeah. I was like, you should be saying, um, like the rest of humans. Are you a robot? You know what I'm saying? Oh, wow. That would be another great human test. Give a one minute <laughs> speech. If you don't say, um, you're a robot. I mean, Bill could be a robot. He's that good at speaking. He's That's amazing. awesome. I'm excited to hear from him. Well, his book's great. It's called fail more. Go check it out. The art of failure, how you can, you can fail and it still leads to success because it's never the end of your story. Keep pushing keep fighting, keep going. Never, ever quit. That's Winston Churchill. He's also a big fan of Churchill. So we connected a lot. Without further ado, here he is, Bill Woodich. Well, Bill, thanks so much for being on and taking some time to talk with us. I know you're a busy man, but I want you to start by introducing yourself. Who are you? Kind of what's your story and how do you get to where you are today? How much time do I have? Well, we'll we'll condense it as quick as you can, I guess. Uh, You know, I'll give give you a Cliff Notes version. I I grew up in a really small town in Western Pennsylvania, Kane, Pennsylvania with a K. And you know what it's known for, Zach? It's known as the icebox of the United States. Not not just Pennsylvania, which is really cold, but it's the icebox of Pennsylvania. So I grew up in a very strict household with a father who was a state policeman, was all authority, couldn't grow my hair. Had to have hair, you know, just very, very short. Had to cut the grass, do the lawn, build barns, all that stuff you would do if you read Mark Twain and thought, this is great. We have horses, we have cattle. But they didn't tell you how to work for it. So grew up with that type of background where work and a work ethic was extremely important. My mother taught me that for every dollar that someone pays you, make sure you give them a dollar ten of value. So with that kind of ethic and discipline, I had to build myself into a person who, even though if I didn't want to do something, I had to find a way or make a way to do it. That was key. Well, well, you know, I, uh, I had this very rebellious streak inside me. And I think that a lot of people today in leadership positions come across now with a more sanitized background. But at one time, they were probably those rebels, those people who got you know, push the authority law just a little bit. And so I resisted all the authority I have when I was young. And I ended up just not caring about school at all. So I didn't care about school. Didn't want to go to school. Hmm. Uh, didn't, didn't, didn't care about college. And I went to work in a factory. So I ended up because of my choices working in a factory. Now I'm not throwing shade on people who work in factories, but a factory to me is a place in your mind or physical where there are limits. Of course, you, know, you punch in it, you punch in at a certain time, you punch out at a certain time, you got an hour for lunch, that kind of structure is for someone who's creative, you know, that, that just didn't feel good to me. Yeah, it's not a box. Parents, you, you don't want to be in a box. Mm-hmm. So I, and I can't draw with, you know, I, I don't use lines on tablets. I don't need lines. Okay. Right. I just kind of use scribbles and stuff, but I had a chance to go to school. I had to learn how to learn. I had to use that discipline and not, if I didn't want to do something, I had to find a way or make a way to do it. So I ended up putting myself in a position where I could then go forward in life. And 
without sucking all the air out of this podcast. That's the first stage of my life right there. That was the first stage of my life. That's great. I love it. I mean, you grew up very, very disciplined. Uh, and then you end up kind of making, making it in sales. If I'm, if I remember correctly, kind of tell us that journey as well. No, that was a real journey that almost never began. And the, and the reason it never began, almost never began is I didn't want to do it. So whenever someone talked to me about selling or sales, I just had kind of had that feeling that ah, I don't really know if I want to get in this type of an environment. It just doesn't fit my nature. I want to be a manager. I went to school to be a manager. I want to be able to use what I learned. Well, there's no one going to hire, you know, then we're going to hire me as a manager right out of the gate. Right. The only thing available was, was selling. So I got a job at an insurance company, right. but it wasn't life insurance. It happened to be property and casualty insurance, workers' compensation, general liability. And this company was called Liberty, Liberty Mutual. They were a Fortune 500 company. And I became their top salesperson in, in two years. Hmm. And I did it. And I think the most important thing for your listener, I did it by not trying to sell but by opening myself to engagement, by using communication as a way to enroll, actions as a way to adhere, and those actions of enrollment, and that adherence to certain principles in my mind and the similar principles of my clients, Hmm. that was the beginning of a whole new way. And to this day, they still call that the Woodage way. You don't try to sell, you don't look at the wallet, you try to win hearts and minds. And I'll tell you, you know this, you can't win them all. Yeah. But you got to be able to be there for the ones you can. Right. That's a great yeah. lesson for selling, but it's also a great lesson just for leadership. If you're, if you're leading people and, and you're leading them in the more military, uh, the, the dogmatic way of, of this way, my way or the highway, you got to win the hearts of the people. And, and that's what true leaders have. They have the hearts of the people and they inspire people to do more. But along your journey, you're, you're selling, you become the top salesman at Liberty Mutual. You, you continue to climb, but then you write a book called Fail More. You write a book on failure after what, what seems like a successful career in, in sales and continuing to grow, but you write a book on failure. So tell, tell us about that. What, what did that process look like? <laughs> My prescription for continued sustained success is to fail, Hmm. fail more. Because if you don't put yourself out there in a position where it is difficult and the difficulty level involves a trip, a stumble, a setback or a failure, you're not putting yourself out there far enough. You're staying in what you said. You're staying in a box of comfort. Yeah. And see, that's the hardest thing about success. We talk about it. We want it. We want to achieve. We have aspirations. We have goals. We have dreams. But we stay in a box because we don't want the F word. We don't want to fail. So if you think about a coin, the other side of the coin that is success is failure. Right. You can't get to a point where you're successful unless you first learn from the lessons of failure. Hmm. Yeah. So that's why I wrote it. I was compelled to write it. Yeah. What, what kind of compelled you to write it? What failure in your life did you face or what did you see? Hey, that caused me, that propelled me further <laughs> than any success I had. What, what kind of, what, what is there you. a story behind that? Uh, let me tell you this. The book is about mm, half an inch thick. If I was right. going to write about every failure, it would be the size of war and peace, which is about eight inches thick. So right. I didn't write about every one. But, but this is the thing, you know, when I used to be able to walk through bookstores at a time when you could walk through bookstores, right. you'd see all these 
shelves full of success. All these umbrellas and do this and find your purpose, find your why, do this. It's all very, very positive, hunky-dory stuff that doesn't come with the dark side. Mm. But the dark side's always there. Right. People just don't want to tell you there's a dark side. The dark side is that you're going to have to get dirty. You're going to break your nails. You're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to learn that, yeah, rejection stings. Mm. But if you want to get and move forward and become something of value, you got to get used to the sting. Right. So the book, in the book, I was compelled to teach. And I want to teach people where, where, the, where fear really came from. You know, what it really is, the difference between fear and danger. And when you feel this, this is why you're feeling this thing. Okay, but you got to move through it. You might never get rid of it, but you can at least attenuate it. You have to move through it. So the first part of the book was on fear where it comes from in the brain, why it's part of our survival, but why we have to move through conference rooms and through boardrooms in spite of it. And the other part is, how do we learn from those trips, those falls? You know, do we take it as, oh my God, I'm never going to get back in the field to play. What am I going to do? I'm less than. Society says I flunked, I failed. You know what? That's a mantra. That's a way for success. Because in every failure, man, there's lessons you got to write down what happened. How do you ever, how can you ever put yourself in position for a future win unless you don't learn from the lessons of what happened in the past, good and bad. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write this for people that there's some, the, the person that's coming up through a company or the person that's at home or the, and, and they're thinking, is there any way to break out of this box? How do I do it? I gave them a prescription, a way, a formula. And I think it would, I think it'll work. No, I think it does too. I want to go back to the first part that you were talking about where fear, where it comes from. And I think the fear of falling, the fear of failing. And I think fear is a huge human driver. People make decisions based off fear all the time, but I think it's a very unhealthy way to make decisions. If you're making a decision based off fear, you're making a decision in a way that is negative. And so where does fear come from? Why is it such a, a huge human innate factor? Uh, you just said the fear of falling. That's one of the innate fears. The other one's the fear of loud noises. So we're born with only two fears, right? It's a fear of loud noises and it's a fear of falling. But here's the key, Zach. We learn all the other fears in society. So our immersion, our introduction into school and around the table from our parents, you know, from our friends, from the people that might tease us when they call us out in class. We learn that as a, a, a certain shame we wear that we don't want to put ourselves out there because we feel like we're losing something. We don't want to be ostracized. One of the things we want to do to survive is not be cut out of the herd. We don't want to be ostracized. So when people make fun of us, uh, we don't want to stick out. We want to just be all part of that herd mentality. So fear comes, it's the brain's way of protecting us from danger. Now you've got to know the difference, Zach, between what fear is as an imagination, something that's a florid representation from your imagination and what it is as an early warning signal about danger and danger is imminent threat from a man, an insect, or a reptile. Everything else for the most part, it's all part of your imagination. You sit on your couch, you're in the dark, you're, you're in your car, you start thinking about things, you always default to the worst case. That's fear taking over, that's fear winning. So it's part of our biological imperative for survival, but it's something that we need to understand today in our logical brain. Hey, hey, saber-toothed tiger isn't coming in this conference room. Right. Okay, we're okay. 
Uh, But we're still acting with those vestiges of the past. That's a real quick rundown on what fear really is. Yeah. So talk about the fear of stepping out. You have an idea, you want to, you want to take something to the next level, but you're afraid that it's going to fail. You're afraid that you're going to fall on your face. So you don't do it. So how do you discern between that fear and then the fear that you talked about of it's the fear of protecting us from danger? Because really, I don't think it's danger to step out and do something different. You're just afraid of what people might think. Well, there it is. Yeah. So, so what prevents you from doing most things is what you think the external feedback will be. Right. You see, most of us right. don't want to stick ourselves out there in a position where we have to be moving through those, those fields of fear to, to succeed because we're worried about what society is going to say about it. Oh, man, the guy's a loser. Hey, she's, she, did, she could have, hey, you're not good enough. So we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we have to say, oh, wow, we're not deemed to be good enough. The less you care about that, the greater you're going to be able, the more you're going to be able to make moves through fear. Now, here's the big thing. For me, it was this. The stronger motivator is what's going to move you every time. So for me in those four walls of a factory, the fear was I'm going to always stay stuck here. Now, okay. If I break out of here, I might fail. Yes. But if I don't try now, I'm going to be stuck with my biggest fear. And I I think, first of all, everyone needs to know this, find your biggest fear. What is it? You really need to work on and think about your biggest fear. My biggest fear was this. Hey, if I didn't make a move, would I have regret? Would I be 96 years old on a park bench and not be able to do those things at that point that I can do now? That was my biggest fear. So that that motivator, excuse me, got me out there moving forward. And I thought, I don't want to live that. I also didn't want to be poor. So those motivators were like this. Hey, someone in the conference room, someone in the boardroom, someone might hang up on me. Someone might not want my proposal. Someone might say, what is your full of crap? Okay, that stings. That's not good. That doesn't feel good. I own it. But man, is it worse than the long-term regret of doing nothing? I don't think so. So the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, what is it you fear? What would happen if you do it? What's your worst case and what's your upside? You'll always, always manage to your upside if you know your worst case. But man, you just got to get in there and do it. Mm, I love that. And that even goes back to your roots of the way you grew up, the hard work, the discipline, the getting stuff done is that you're going to step out no matter what society thinks. Because I think a lot of us, like what we've been talking about, we're so in tune and we're so afraid of what people are going to say or think. But how did you move past that? How almost the people pleasing or how did you move past caring really what society thought of your decision or what you did? One of my biggest limits was I care too much about what people thought. And I would do anything. I remember this attorney asked me one time, he said, what did you, would you still jump off the top of a building to please one of your clients? Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, is that how I was really perceived? Yeah. And I thought, and I told him, I said, no. I said, I need to be appreciated. I no longer need to be liked. Is it nice to be liked? Of course it is. Right. But do I need that? Do I need that to satisfy my soul? No, I didn't need that. But it was very, very difficult. But I knew that if I was, if the world was going to hear my voice and there was a value in my voice that maybe a little bit of being unpopular wasn't going to do me in. It was probably going to be good because if you come across and you don't really have a voice 
You don't have a conviction behind your voice. There's not a compelling reason that moves people in your voice that comes from a true belief, a true confidence. Well, you're not going to move anybody, especially yourself. Right. So for me, that voice was strong enough to say, hey, look, not everybody's going to like you. That's just the rule of, it's the, rule of the jungle. Mm-hmm. But for those that do and those that will, you, man, that was a value in coming out of the shadows of fear. Yeah, I think that's huge of being able to move out of fear, being able to step out. So let's move kind of forward with our, our medical, metaphorical story, if you will. We, we've gotten over fear. We've gotten over what society thinks of what we're doing. And we've stepped out onto the ledge and we're going we're gonna to make the jump. What kind of pushes you forward? What is, what is that something inside of you that helps you step off and accept that you might fail, but it's worth it? Adrenaline. (laughs) I love it, man. Let's see if we can do it. You know, you're never going to get, here's the thing that's a misnomer out there. It's in all the, it's in a lot of books, not all of them, but you really never get over your fear. It it just can become so insignificant. It's always still, there's always a little kernel perhaps of that fear of that uncertainty. It just manifests itself as something different. That means a little bit of caution. uh, You know, we we call it wisdom at a certain point, but it's not, it morphs from a a real fear of not doing something where you're just debilitated by the thought to a, mm, okay, this is my, my experience shows me that I need to look for these things before I jump off this ledge. And if I do jump, I got to know where I'm going to land. So you see, if you know where you're going to land, the jump isn't that bad. If you don't know where you're going to land or how far the jump is, it's pretty scary. Yeah. So for me, for me, I want, I wanted my voice to be heard. And I knew to do that, I have to put myself out there. So everyone that's listening has to ask the first question, what is it that I really fear? I mean, really down deep for me, for me, it was that I would try and come up short of my own expectations. That was my biggest fear. So I just half blanked everything. I just kind of went through the motions until that time when I thought, okay, here I am at Liberty Mutual. What am I going to do? Am I going to just become mediocre, just do enough to get by? Or am I going to push this thing all the way, give it everything I got and see how good I really am? So it was a self-test and that was most important to me. Let's just see how good I really am. Yeah, I love that. And I think even I've, I've watched some of your videos and, and you set kind of goals, if, if I'm not mistaken, that you went in and asked, hey, who's your top salesman? Who's the guy I need to beat? And you said, I'm going to beat him in X amount of time. So what, 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 what do goals play into failure or, or stepping off the ledge, if you will? Well, here's the thing about goals. And thank you for watching that because you're paying attention <laughs> because I looked at that. No, I looked at that leaderboard. And I said, who's number one? Because that was the external, the outside validation of how good I was. And see, today I don't assess myself. I don't use a word like judgment, but I don't assess myself in that same standard. Mm-hmm. Today it's a, a lot different of, in my way of thinking, I'm making a difference, not having to see it up on a number. Because at the end of the day, that's a zero sum game. Is always someone with more, someone who's done more, someone that's going to do more. But in starting out, I needed that crystal clarity of a goal. So my goal was in a number. I wrote the number down. Now goals, goals, and dreams. I'm going to com- I'm going to conflate the two. Goals and dreams without action, and I mean massive action. You probably heard that so many times it hurt your ears, but action and activity that rules success 
have to be directed toward the result you need. They are governed by failure. They're pointed, the direction is through failure. That's how you learn, that's how you move forward in, in, toward those goals. But they have to be crystal, they have to be, you have to be very clear with your goals. See, most people, Zach, believe it or not, man, they always know what they, what they fear, but they really don't know what they want. And then most important, they don't know or aren't willing to endure what it takes to get or reach the goal. There it is right there. Yeah. You got to be willing to do it. You got to, you got to put in the time. You got to get your hands dirty. You got to do it. You said something in there that I think is very important. Activity rules success. That, that's one of your, your banners. What does that mean? How do we apply it? What do we do with that? You know, I was in my first sales job, Liberty Mutual, and I, I opened up this, this bullpen desk and all that was left was a little six inch ruler. And, and I didn't know anything about what success was. I had just come out of school. Everything was in a book. Everything was theory, but I really didn't know what this thing success was, except it really sounded good in books. And, you know, once in a while you score a touchdown in a football game and you were successful. So I didn't really understand the depth of success in the context of, of life. But that ruler, wow, that was clear. That was direction. It said, and I remember looking at it. Activity, okay. It was a little, little small six-inch gold ruler. Activity rules success. All right. So I studied the environment. I gauged the activity. And I knew that if I was going to be successful, I would have to ramp up, amp up, and hold myself accountable to a certain level of activity that I hadn't seen before, not in myself, not in others. So I made that commitment. The first bargain you make, and remember this, you don't negotiate with success. You meet it on its terms. You do not negotiate with success. You've got to be willing to do those things, endure those things that bring you closer to the goal, the goal of, of success in any endeavor. So that ruler about activity was the key. Think about it this way. If not everyone's going to buy from you, not everyone likes you, all right? right? The bigger the number of people you have in that population, the greater the shot, someone's going to like you, someone's going to buy from you. It's just the law of numbers. So law of numbers is the first thing in business and life. You've got to always be expanding those horizons. If you don't, you're, you're going to perish because things never stay the same. Yeah, that's good. Activity rules success. You got to move forward. You got to keep going. But, but the, the freeing thing about that is that you're going to fail. You are going to fall on your face. But I think what's most important is how you respond to that and how that pushes you forward. So another aspect you talk about is failing your way forward. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you fail well, if you, if you, will, if you say it like that, if you fail in a good way? What's the positive side of failure? How do you fail your way forward? The only way you fail well is if you take lessons from that failure and apply them for success in the next time you go out. Mm. That's the only way. Other, th I mean, at the end of the day, people say, I'm not saying failure is good. I'm saying it's necessary. Yeah. I'm saying it's part of that bargain on that success contract. So if you're taking that lesson and you can say, oh, you know what, man, I was out on this call. I did this wrong. Man, you, get, you got your feedback loop. You asked for feedback. You got feedback could have been different here. You're off on this. Now you're prepared for that. So now you start making preparations to address that. Where was the weakness? Where did I miss it? I found this out. You take notes in a journal, a success journal, but the success journal is full of failure. 
but they're full of things you've learned from those failures. See, for me, man, I failed a thousand times in a week, a thousand times a week. Every time someone hung up the phone on me, every time I I didn't get through, every time I didn't make a sale, that was failure. It was a failure. But I was learning how to say or what to do certain things. So I get the appointment from the appointment. So I get to the next step in the process, next step in the process. So I get all the way to yes. That's a matter of putting in the work. And that's a matter of understanding that failure is part of success. Huge, indispensable part. Yeah, I think my generation has lost that ability to fail because and I don't want to blame it on parents. I don't want to blame it on anybody else, but it's, we've been protected. You have the, the helicopter mom revolution, if you will, and, and the safetyism and the fact that words hurt. But in reality, words do not hurt. You're not unsafe when you're rejected. That's part of it. That's part of the way you learn and move forward. So I want to ask you what great leaders do differently when facing failure because everyone faces it but different people respond to it and go a different direction from it. So what is it that makes great leaders great when facing failure? The, the Winston Churchills, the Abraham Lincolns, what do they do different? I just wrote down Winston Churchill, as a matter of fact. So wow, we're, in, we're really? in the same wave. Yeah, I did. I'm gonna, I was going to give you his quote. He, he said that um, success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Hmm. Yeah. Think about it. I just, I just read one. Of, I read a lot of Churchill. I love his wit. Uh, he's got that acerbic type of wit and it's so erudite and how he, how he lays things out. But I'm reading the splendid and the vile. Actually, I'm just turning it over to my uh, assistant Kelsey, but the splendid and the vile by Eric Larson. It's a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Churchill book. So we're on the, we're on the same wavelength. But if I could just capture one thing you said and take it out there and, and use it for everyone in your stage and age group to listen to it's your take on, the, on that growth mindset you have, understanding that, that, that words don't hurt, right. Right, unless we allow that to happen. And the difference between fixed and growth mindset and, the, and how that contributes to success later in life, which is in my book, Fail More, from Carol Dweck, Stanford researcher, who found that, that the ability to keep trying, that growth-oriented mindset, even in the, in the face of insoluble problems, that ability to keep trying, that willpower effect, if you will, was a, a greater indicator of future success, e- even more so, Zach, than IQ. Yeah. So that's the key. You're, you know, I, I don't want to sound like my parents and sound like, you know, they were in my generation, but man, you got to be, you got to get tough. And you can't use that word today. You got to be a little more sensitive to a whole lot of things. But at the end of the day, you inside, you got to have a little steel in there to say, yeah, man, it's going to hit. I'm going to get hit. It's going to hurt. You know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to blame somebody else because I failed. I'm going to look in the mirror. I'm going to own it. If it's to be, it's going to be up to me. And I own that as my guiding light forward. So I think some of the great leaders in history, some of the leaders I see today, they say, hey, look, it's all part of the equation from Steve, you know, Steve Jobs to Mark Cuban, uh, to one of the richest men in the world. You know, uh, um, um, there's just the way I, mean, I was watching this thing on, on Bill Gates and he was talking about it. Hey, I want to fail. I want to fail fast. It's my way forward. Elon Musk said, if I fail a thousand times, and I never become successful at this. I want to leave it for someone else to take and then learn and make it successful. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack Ma, those people 
have all gone through these things that we're going through. Yeah. It's just how they've been able to adapt and evolve from there. Yeah. Just like you were saying with Winston Churchill, he, he kept going, he kept pushing, you know, the, the famous speech, we'll fight on the beaches, we'll fight in the streets, but we will never, mm -hmm. ever surrender. And it's that mental toughness to, to face the, the failure, to face the, the inevitable and to keep going. So my generation needs to be more mentally tough than we are. I'll say it. We all need to be more mentally tough. But how do you get there? How is mental toughness developed? Because we need it. You know, this is going to be the easy answer, but, and it's the toughest thing to do, but it's just to do it and always use history. And I'm a, I'm a student of history. So what I do with history is I understand context. Think about Churchill, what he faced Western civilization, according to some really hung in the balance of his decisions his fortitude, his ability to look up through the darkness of the darkest times when bombs were falling and move a people toward a common goal from a common enemy. You see, that's where mental toughness comes from. It, understanding context. Hey, is this thing really that bad? Ask that question. Is it that bad? What, what's going to happen if I do it or don't do it? What, what's the levels of regret? See, for me, mental toughness is the discipline, the habits you grow to do those things when you don't want to do it. You think I want to go to the gym at five o'clock at night when I'm tired from work? No. But you know what I do? I step in. Making the first step, showing up makes all the difference. You think I want to get up at five and read something for a show? No. I want to hit the snooze button. I don't do it. At least not most of the time. Yeah. Because I got to get up and do it. And that's part of that bargain of success. Over time, you start to grow the mental toughness part. Over time, you understand that the opinions of people that you're giving people all your personal power because you care about what they think. There's certain people you're always going to care about what they think. Of course. Yeah. Of course, you're in a circle. But be careful that their voices don't become your voice. Yeah. Be careful. That's so good. I would really encourage anyone to go find this book. Go find Fail More. Read it. Because... Failure is a good thing. Failure can send you forward. Failure can push you further than you ever thought. You got to be mentally tough. Got to push through. Never, ever surrender to your fear or you're never going to make it as far as you want. But Bill, thank you for writing this book. I, want, I got one more question for you that I love asking all our leaders. It's just what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? 20-year-old Bill Woodage sitting at the factory in the box. What advice would you tell or give that guy? I would give him this advice, this advice, try to shut down as much as you can, the voice of the external, the voice of the people who say you can't, for the most part, Zach, that's their insecurity speaking to you. Don't own, don't wear the cloth of insecurity. That insecurity comes from others. And the most important thing, how people will assess you when you walk into a room is grow your competence, grow competent. See, people will look and they'll feel your confidence before they ever stick around to see if you know something. Mm -hmm. Knowledge has to come with it. But man, the competence to do things for people, make your word your bond, be competent and learn what voices are important out there. And the most important one is yours. Well, that's good advice. I hope we heed it. We take it. We fail, but we learn from our failure. We don't let it run, roll over us. But Bill, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it more than you know. Yeah, I feel that uh, the world's a better place with you in it doing what you do. So keep going forward, man. If I can be of help, just let me know. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. 